2: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time I have invited um, a random Irish guy, Zach Twainy, from one of the most amazing and largest and most important podcasts you should listen to when um, diplomacy fails, to talk about, well, the beginning of the war. Since I've gotten a lot of emails and and requests to actually explain Igor Girkin's role in all of this, and that is very clearly tied, at least in his own mind, to how all this mess started. And um, also that there's a lot of myths about you know, NATO expansion, Minsk agreements, all that nonsense and, and how this all ties in together. So, well, I want to introduce you. If you haven't listened to him, please go check him out. Um, near doctor, I, I presume. Yes. I don't know if he, he hasn't gotten his tardis just yet, but he will very soon. Zach Twenty. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. And I should actually say,
1: and I insist that we leave this in. My name is Zach Twomley. So diplomacy has failed already. But then again, I can't pronounce your name either, so that's fine.
2: Well, I mean, look, you're from Ireland. I'm from Latvia. It it, it should be kind of normal that you know we're in that position where we have those weird surnames. I'm I'm really sorry about. Well, I am very offended, but we'll <laughs> proceed. Well, no, this is this is this is better than the last time when um when I had Alexander Heaton from Political Orphanage on my show together with um, sorry, Andrew Heaton. God see, I did this again. I always forget his first name constantly. Yeah. So at least I know yours, Zach. So that that's <laughs> that's at least fine.
1: Yeah, so I I'm I'm Zach Twomley. I run the podcast when diplomacy fails. We typically don't go near modern politics just because I get so much of that anyway. I'm quite active on Twitter, and so far as I scroll and get depressed, so I'm because I'm doing the PhD. I'm kind of sticking to more historical stuff. I've covered all sorts of historical conflicts and that kind of thing. Thirty Years War. I've been very interested in. I'm nearing the end of that. I covered the July Crisis, the Korean War. I did this real long series on the Treaty of Versailles. If, he wants some myth busting on that. So
2: yeah, I've been all over. But it's real nice to be here. I'm personally a Bismarck fanboy, but Oh yes, you know, same. <laughs> I really didn't understand the the point where uh in Germany apparently they changed the name of Bismarck Hall, Bismarck Room there, which diplomats used to use just because apparently the Green Party thought it the Bismarck didn't adhere to their current values or something. Yeah. Bismarck is not a modern guy, but that he's not a nice guy either, but I think he definitely deserves quite a lot of respect, at least how I view it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've actually, just because I mentioned Twitter, I've run into some people who have insisted that Bismarck a, was a raging anti-Semite and he was all sorts of things. I mean, he was by no means a saint. He was pretty much a dickhead to people that he didn't like, which was most people. And his most important thing was searching for power and grabbing as much of it in his hands as he could. So if anyone got in the way of that, whether they were Jewish or Gentile or anything at all, he pretty much destroyed them. So he's a, he's a fascinating guy, but not exactly someone to have as a, a moral role model, but fascinating nonetheless.
2: You know, it's also kind of um, sarcastic and scary to think about that currently we have like uh, the nicest people, people who care most about people's interests in power in at least democratic countries right now uh, which is scary if you know what they're doing and how everything functions but yeah it used to be way worse before this just a reminder there
1: yeah absolutely i mean as bismarck would say it's like law making is like sausages everyone likes the end result but no one likes to see how they're actually made so behind closed doors. You don't want to see that disgusting sausage meat going everywhere. And I mean, sausage rolls, real nice, but how, how did I end up on this? Yeah, it's...
2: <laughs> I spent a whole day using my journalist pass. I wanted to see how budget meetings are done in the parliament. So I went and sat through the final round of debates in Lafayette Parliament where they made our next year's budget. That was the most boring, miserable experience I've had in my life. And I've been oh, to the war zones.
1: It's dull.
2: Yeah. <sighs> anyway, by the way, I, w- I wanted to mention this thing, which I mention every time when someone asks how I know Zach. Uh, we met in 2018 in, in Boston. We did. Yeah.
1: Yes. That was We were great. the only
2: two people from Europe in the whole sound education conference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we were representing the EU. We were basically ambassadors.
2: There was an after party and they just literally made us sit together because we are both from Europe. I remind you, yeah. he's from Ireland and I'm from Latvia. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah, we had plenty of things to talk about. Uh, Uh, I had some...
2: The potatoes, definitely, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah,
1: lots of potatoes have that in common anyway. (laughs)
2: Talking about potatoes and other vegetables, let's focus on Igor Gyrkin then.
1: Okay, yes.
2: How he likes to call himself Strelkov. He recently posted on Telegram that he is to blame for this whole, as he calls it, righteous patriotic war, that he's the instigator. And he claims the fact that he was up there as the first defense minister, as they call called them, I suppose, in the Donetsk People's Republic. He also vehemently denies that he has Hmm. anything to do with the MH17, you know, catastrophe, although that's been quite proven. (laughs) He is a war criminal, but then again, he has never been to Europe, and he uh, honestly believes that... He he believes some sort of Alex Jones version of how everything is here. And he also claims that he's been there and the person with guns aimed at uh, at Crimean deputies who then voted to have the referendum. And that alone kind of, uh, I think tosses out the argument that any Crimean referendum was honest because the reason to make it was made under gunpoint and then voting was under gunpoint. But yeah, you know, he claims that he's the central figure in all of this and he definitely has a role to play. But how would you rate him? Uh, almost Dr. Zach? I will not pronounce your surname. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can be as rude as you like by the way i can remind
1: you oh okay well uh, he is a great a cunt but that is besides the point he's not exact i mean every time he pops up in my uh field of consciousness it's always about something bad that he's done now you mentioned to me that in terms of like military affairs he has a much better strategic mind than most but then that wouldn't be all that hard. But those self-professed republics, I mean, those are pretty much essential to why this is all happening because Putin's used them over and over again as justification. So he's kind of been in the center of things for a while, whether he actually played that bigger role or not. I mean, debatable, but he's certainly been difficult to get rid of. And if you've been looking at his telegram, then I'm sure He's dropped some very, uh, very fascinating nuggets for you to digest and scratch your head over.
2: Well, he's recently made his um, club of pissed off patriots. I called it club of angry patriots, but uh, but it's, it's most closely translated to pissed off because uh, he's together with a bunch of other guys who are kind of like him, who truly believe that now NATO is going to instantly assault Russia and that they're fighting this patriotic war. And he's also a total monarchist. I think, I think at one point, by the way, um, he mentioned in one of his interviews, just, just at random, that he personally hates the Dutch. Oh, well, that's a random grudge to have unless maybe you're... No, no, no. And then his reason is that they uh, overthrew the rightful king of Spain who ruled over them. <laughs> He's per- he also manages somehow to be pro-Habsburg. In this day and age. What an absolute soup of ideologies in that man. How does he stay upright? We have a thing where he's crying and hugging a rocket and being sad. We're selling t-shirts of that. And then he just came <laughs> up with, with his stuff. But but about like beginning of the situation? Um it was it was 2014. And mm-hmm. well, once again, he's said the Yanukovych, their elected president, at because Ukraine is one of those bizarre situations where they're not a parliamentary republic and they're not also a presidential republic. Mm. Yanukovych basically decided to abandon any European integration and switch over to Russia. And then people went out to protest. Russia claims that Yanukovych was an honestly elected president. So this whole thing is a coup. Meanwhile, the people of Ukraine claim that, well, the parliament was elected and they remained in power. And this was some sort of a peaceful thingy. That's a bizarre situation, but... um, Of course, Russia losing interest in everything uh, was the kind of the major catalyst for, for example, the Crimean annexation. But there is a major question about, you know, how I see it. uh, And this is what I want to ask you here as an expert. On one hand, I've heard arguments that Putin needed to grab this Crimea to show some sort of a win because Russia was in a bit of an economical stump at that point. Mm. And the other argument is that uh, due to the fact that about 30% of Russian families have Ukrainian ties, if Ukraine would have joined like the EU and had actual growth of economy and more freedoms, then that would negatively impact Putin's own standing. You know, People would talk and stuff. Uh, so Putin needs Ukraine to be pro-Russian because of all this connection and a bunch of historical reasons as well, obviously. But it was mostly because traditionally thought, at least here, like it was on to solve internal problems, at least the Crimean part. Sure. And then the separatists kind of just popped up as a continuation. What would you say about this? How, how do you see this?
1: Yeah, about the same. I mean, we could joke about the whole, oh, it's it was the US that launched the coup. That's probably the most common thing I see from all the Vatniks on there, that it's just, oh, well, Ukrainians don't have their own agency. They couldn't possibly despise the neighbor right beside them that's been trying to interfere in, in their affairs. And they couldn't possibly want to have their own destiny and join the largest trading block in, in the world. Like, it's kind of ridiculous. And having, I was actually in Ukraine just before COVID hit and um, meeting one of my listeners who's, he's the youngest Ukrainian parliamentarian that's ever been. His name is Svatoslav Yurash, really intelligent guy. Destined for big things, and as far as I'm aware, he's currently fighting on the front line. So I hope he's doing okay. But yeah, it's having talked to them, it just it it really makes me very angry when people come in trying to dismiss the idea that Ukrainians wanted to have their own destiny and that they have a right to that destiny, and it's not up to Russia. And this whole like 19th century idea of like spheres of influence and everything doesn't really compute unless you're a paranoid, angry, bitter, ill-informed man like Putin is who as far as we know now doesn't even have a phone or access to the internet so he's gone even more in that direction than before so yeah I mean regarding all the stuff in Crimea and everything else it it comes back to that whole strategy of when things are going pretty shit at home you try and stir up some shit abroad so that people don't notice the shit at home and they look at that shit abroad instead and in a way it's worked but for Russians at at least or for Putin but do we think he really needed to Do that considering the fact that, like, it by all accounts, Russians don't have any intentions to remove Putin, and like, who would they put there if they did? One of his rich gangster friends, anyway. So, I mean, realistically, did he need to do what he did? No, but I would take the view that he wasn't necessarily doing it for strategic or logical reasons, and I think there's much more of the ideology informed by very inaccurate ideas of Russian and Ukrainian history and all this kind of thing. And you can just see from the beginning as well that Putin didn't think and does not think that Ukraine is a nation, that its people are any different from Russia. I mean, you'd think the existence of two different languages would make that pretty clear. And it just, it it frustrates me because it's so patently, blatantly untrue, but you can really get the measure of people when they trot out. Putin's arguments to basically justify these horrendous barbaric acts that we thought were consigned to the 20th century. And yeah, there's no justification. There's no real way to I- explain what he's done in from our own moral perspective or even from a, a sensible point of view. It's really coming down to how utterly deluded he is and that he's been allowed to be at the top of Russia for so long. And basically inflicts that delusion on the Russian people.
2: Interesting that you see the point of, you know, us having our own decisions to make. But you're from Ireland and I'm from Latvia, where um we are both extremely lucky to live right next to an imperialistic oppressive neighbor who's actively invaded us, conquered us, and you know, tried to destroy our <laughs> culture wholesale. <laughs> hmm, that's a nice thing, you know. Um weirdly enough, yep. the British have also they can for a bit. Historically, we had a bunch of British mayors. It's <laughs> where, where haven't they been? The thing is, this is this is the argument that I see uh, in a lot of lot of cases. A lot of people just refuse to believe that people who come from smaller nations. I don't know. Um, should exist. I think it, it should exist yeah. that, that we have a that we have our own agency yeah. that we can actually you know decide something for our own. The argument that Latvia, for example, is run from the United States and all this stuff—it's constantly there. Yeah. And if those people would know anything about our parliament, they would know that you know these dumb fucks that we have elected can not take orders from anyone. That would be just awful. But um, yeah, the whole but the whole situation is that again, this nineteenth century mentality about fears of influence and all this stuff and, and what should and shouldn't exist. I mean, how many revolutions more do we need to go through to make sure that everyone understands that no, you know, people have a right choose something and
1: yeah it's a good question but I think unfortunately like when this all started last year I had a hope that Russians would take matters into their own hands and do a 1917 on the whole thing again but it just doesn't seem to be going that way at all and in a way that's history repeating itself I don't want to make comparisons to the Nazis because the Nazis were the Nazis but it is very reminiscent of that era where not just like like the Germans there was that strong amount of people who genuinely believed in Hitler and everything else but there was also a sizable contingent who were terrified and had seen people being shot and taken away
2: and everything else and i think that's really playing out in russia now see see putin's been working on this apathy mode he's been actively oh, yeah. encouraging people to not go to elections to be as apathetic as humanly possible yeah so 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 most of these support things well you know rating is way overblown because what do you do when someone calls you in Russia and asks, do you like Putin on the phone? Right. (laughs) Of
1: course. Yeah.
2: Those
1: those exercises are unfortunately quite futile. But that that thing about apathy is so true. And we often expect with Russian propaganda to make us angry or to make us confused or make us question things. But unfortunately, it's been more effective in making people just be kind of like, I guess everyone's all the same. Then I guess this is always happening. I mean, look at NATO bombed Yugoslavia. Therefore, Ukraine being invaded is just fine. And you often see that trotted out. And it's, it's. I mean, as an argument in itself, it's fundamentally flawed because you can't just compare two very different situations like that and say one plus one equals two. But these these propagandists aren't much for nuance, as we know.
2: Well, nuance is a rare commodity these days. And uh, even, though, <laughs> even though we swear a lot on the show, I... I pride myself on actually, you know, um, being able to put at least some sentences together in a complex, you know, form, sure. unlike Boris Johnson, you know, <laughs> but this is what it is. Um, uh, but another thing that everyone like looks super openly about is like, people, especially on the pro-Russian side, they focus on the fact that if someone uses pagan symbols, then there must be a Nazi and everything. Mm-hmm. And everyone's so focused on, on this whole past thing that it kind of, as a historian, even If I can call myself that, I don't have a PhD yet. I think you can. There is a tendency among Nazis and and far right people to use these symbols, but not everyone who uses them is a far right person. Like, if you're a fascist, then you do fascist things, and you can like put any symbol on top of it. It doesn't need to be that. Sure. I just don't think that automatically, if someone uses pagan symbolism, there that makes them instantly Nazi, because we're gonna have our own folk and sing dance fest which we have every four years starting with 1878 it was one of those romanticism nationalism revival things and if you look at our traditional symbols oh boy if if you look if you squint really hard and focus you can see a lot of (laughs) swastikas there But it's just it's just
1: (sighs) no, I know. But that's what they thrive on. They will take that. They will grab all these little images together and place them out of context and say, oh, look, it's been hiding in plain sight the whole time. And people who are less aware of the nuance, less aware that swastikas existed before the Nazis or less really able to judge these fascists by their deeds rather than their symbols. You know, that's what Russians are playing on. They're not playing on us who know better they're playing on people who well probably watch fox anyway so they in 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 that sense they wouldn't be looking for all that much extra information you know it's it's an unfortunate kind of trap most people fall into and even lately with musk's wonderful regeneration renaissance of twitter you might say having worked his magic a lot of these so-called news organizations whether it's ort or whether it's the chinese so-called new services, have been able to remove those tags that say they're state-funded or state-affiliated and now they get to just spew out all this garbage and look legitimate while doing it.
2: Well, um, on, on that hand, by the way, uh, I had a, I had a nice bet, by the way, because uh, I'm a sneaky bastard. I, I sometimes do sports betting. By the way, I've bet on Borussia Dortmund winning their game tonight. <laughs> uh, but uh, see, the thing is, recently, you know, a, a year ago, about when this war started, I was on one of my friends, Daryl Cooper's show, Martyr Mate. Sure, he surprisingly to me at least, has taken a very pro-Russian stance. And this he truly believes the NATO encroachment thing, which we'll get to, by the way. This is my very awkward segue to that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but basically, he truly believed that thing and he was angry on one of the things that I made about how I um, I think I posted on Twitter that you know, those people who wish death upon Putin and his cronies, they're not bastards enough. I mean, I've read the book, How to Insult People, which is a journalist's handbook by Alexander Devzorov in Russia. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, they deserve court just to see democracy in action. They need full process. They do not deserve to be killed by a random man or a bomb. No, no, no. They deserve to go through all the Kafkaist process that we have in the EU. You know, let let them do the bureaucracy thing. That would yeah. be nasty. And he commented on this. And so it happened that his fans arrived on my Twitter channel. Oh, boy. And it ended up with me offering you know an honest bet because i don't want to ruin my relations with daryl so we made a bet about i offered him to put some money on it uh-huh. and one of his fans said that, that you know seven to one like Russia's going to win this war easily <laughs> and daryl agreed to seven to one. Oh my i bet to, i bet two hundred dollars that ukraine wins if if i win when i win <laughs> for those fourteen hundred dollars um I'm, I'm making a massive party in odessa for everyone who wants to come uh barbecue and beer is on me and everything just saying you're invited to zach
1: oh well that's cool i mean i i'm not sure if you'll
2: see that money though to be honest (laughs) one thing though one thing though (laughs) daryl we might disagree with him politically but i think he honestly believes this just like does. he's not dishonest he is in in his essence an honorable man right and that's the one reason that i think he will actually pay up when ukraine wins but uh I just wanted to document this because this was on Twitter, but this needs to be put out there. Funny, funny little story, because everything we're going to talk about is going to turn way more depressive super quickly, as it usually does. It's in the historical record now, so.
0: (laughs) Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and, right now, all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military, Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border, on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. No, no, that, that was also
2: unfair, but just NATO expansion thing. Yeah, oh boy. I, I personally thought that after Finland and Sweden decided to join NATO, and, and Putin just just openly stated that, oh, no, no, you know, that's that's nothing, it's fine, they can do whatever they want. doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter that you can literally put nukes of, like, you know, uh, basically three kilometers, maybe five kilometers from St. Petersburg. Uh, who cares? I, I think the very fact that they joined in, somehow just, for me... It, Completely bashed the whole stupid argument about oh NATO expansion bad yeah apparently didn't apparently Ukraine is special in some way for one my, my argument here is and again I will just, I, I want you to go elaborate and deep on this because <laughs> you're the expert here uh, comrade uh, comrade Zach so so you can at least act like one for a bit yeah <laughs> but, but see, my argument is like this if NATO would actually want to attack Russia. Right? Yeah. This would be the perfect moment to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 they're busy. And I don't even think like, the nuclear arsenal, ugh, I have many, many reasons to think that, that it just won't fire anyways because of how the Soviet mentality and all this stuff. But that's, that's listen to Eastern Border for more news of that. But um, I just think that if, if NATO actually wanted to destroy Russia and attack, when else, and, and grab Japan in as well, uh, it isn't happening. And that with with Finland joining NATO, I don't know.
1: Which kind of exposes the whole thing. I mean, the most aggressive defensive
2: alliance in history. Oh, no. But what about all the... Yeah, what about is the dumbest excuse ever, by the way. But uh, just how do you see NATO expansion and you, Mr. Diplomacy guy, because I've read arguments from all the sides. Were there any actual promises made to Gorbachev or not?
1: Yeah. See, that whole thing, like, it's interesting that you you brought up that about the addition of of Sweden and Finland that kind of nukes Putin's whole reason for supposedly invading with NATO in, in the first place. I mean, it kind of makes a lie of all of it. And in the midst of those two countries joining and the significance of it, I think that fact wasn't played up enough because He got serious mileage, and a lot of the people who gave him that mileage and pushed those propagandist talking points around, I mean, he got way too much mileage out of that, to the point that people don't even know really what NATO is or how it works or its history or its involvement, and then they trot out that whole like Gorbachev thing. I mean, two points on that. One of them is a kind of factual, the other one a bit more legalistic. But the first point is, I mean, as far as Gorbachev's concerned, this was not discussed in this meeting where Putin supposedly said it happened. And in the second, more legalistic point, the agreement, if it can even be called that, because you can't promise things that are going to happen in the future with sovereign independent countries, the agreement was made with the USSR, which no longer existed. So, and yeah, you could call that a more tenuous legal argument, but that is exactly the kind of level of like... I suppose law you could you could point to if you were Russian and say, well, these rules no longer apply anymore. We just saw the believe the Chinese ambassador to France saying that the, according to international law, up until very recently, the Baltic states and the former Soviet states weren't in, like legal international in- entities. They they didn't have a they didn't have a, a right to exist in that sense. There there is a lot to unpack here, and really, you kind of have to start with the fact of what NATO is and. Despite some interventions, most of all in Yugoslavia, where people always talk about NATO bombing Bosnian towns and people died and everything, conveniently leaving out the fact that like Serbs were literally committing genocide against their neighboring countries, particularly Muslims and that kind of
2: thing. So. Just, just Google Srebrenica. Just Google that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I the, the name escaped me, and I always pronounced it wrong anyway. So, yeah, g- Google that, and it, it, it will shock you, because that is never mentioned. NATO's response was heavy in response to a really deplorable person who was...
2: And just because, uh, for unknown reasons, I'm super popular in, in Netherlands and Romania, that's also the one case where the Dutch were complete dicks. <laughs> in... In... Yugoslavia? In Srebrenica specifically, yes. Okay. Oh, I didn't they did a lot of very stupid things because they were afraid of the Serbs and uh yeah. I'll just let's just say if you're Dutch, then you probably shouldn't visit Bosnia anytime soon. Just say it. <laughs> Croatia instead. <laughs> oh let's not make Yugoslav jokes. I still want to go there and still live, you know. <laughs> no fair. And I'm not kidding. I mean if you if you don't know if you don't know anything about the situation in Yugoslavia, it's not that the war has ended. It's that as soon as United Nations peacekeeping forces leave, they're not even going to wait for the next day to start shooting each other. They're going to pick up the guns and start restart the war that instant. And that's not a joke. I've been to Sarajevo in Bosnia. I've been to Srebrenica. I've been to Serbia. The sheer hatred they, they share for each other is to bizarre levels. And you can't do anything about
1: it. Yeah. And it's... Is still going on with, with Kosovo as well. That's kind of an open sore and, and has been for a while. Like it's it a pretty much a powder keg, which is which brings us back to Bismarck.
2: <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing though, he was like completely right about this whole situation. And by the way, Stalin, I think, really learned from, from Bismarck, because right now you see a lot of conflicts in Moldova as well. Mm-hmm. Like the Transnistria has come up as well. And he just, you know... Stalin, in a way, continued colonial policies where he made these Soviet socialist republics, for example, out of Central Asian nations like Kyrgyzstan, without total accountants for where these people actually lived, who they were, and whatever. And he did the same thing as the British did after the World War I. Just put the minority in power, make sure they're ethnically mixed so that they don't bother you. Yeah, but there's a question specifically about the Baltics for you. Since a lot of Russian propaganda channels, including Solovyov and everyone, they claim that we don't deserve independence because legalistically speaking and this is the kind of legalism they pull out of their ass Yeah. Uh, that legally they bought us from Sweden in 1814 <laughs> oh god I, I have a masters in history and I I, I what the fuck, Russia?
0: Yeah. But if you have
2: anything to say about this, please you have probably studied and looked at the, the the Great Northern War and and expansions of Catherine the Great and all this even more than I have. So please.
1: Oh, well, I mean, yeah, well, we have to go all the way back to the Grand Duchy of Novgorod to apparently. Oh, yeah, let's let's do
2: <laughs> let's, let's do that. This is the That's, one chance where we can do this.
1: Let's go. Oh, no. I mean, what, my point is these these things like pointing to international, like, these agreements from two or three or four centuries ago, believe it or not, these things are superseded by more recent agreements and legal treaties. (gasps) Who
2: would have thought...
1: I know, imagine that, especially when they're signed in front of all of the United Nations and agreed to be respected.
2: And, and when those previous nations were made by absolute monarchies with no, you know, um, actual sovereignty from the people. Yeah. And now we have literally, you know, Sweden from right now and Sweden 200 years ago is not the same political entity. J- just saying. Boggles the mind. It, it seems that you actually have to, like, read a book with, like, words in it to understand this point, but I, I don't know. Yeah.
1: I mean, I was going to read a book, but then I just read my uncle's Facebook post that said that Sweden actually belongs to Russia. So oh, yeah, uh, that, that's going to do it for
2: me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the thing here. I mean, I sound like a totally old fart or something, but, like, he's my generation As how I see it.
1: Flushcare.com
2: slash weight loss.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh one. dot com.
2: And probably yours because we're we're somewhat close age wise. I'm thirty three now. Oh, I'm thirty one. So yeah, that that doesn't. Yeah, no, pretty close. I think I think our generation is like the bottom of everything currently, because uh, I've seen I've seen the younger kids and they're very active. For example, at least in Latvia, bullying from schools has disappeared. Yeah, completely. They, they don't bully each other. They don't have like subcultures anymore. There is no like more metal kids and goth kids versus the rappers. <laughs> and they just actually you know care and hang around, and, and they're much more ecologically thinking about everything. So I have I have some hope for the future. Yeah, me too. No, me too. What I don't have hope is for when you know when the current sixty-year-olds and fifty-year-olds who are now running the EU when they leave power and people from our generation step in, oh boy, that's going to be a one terrible period. I think, at least. From the Eastern European side of this situation, I don't I kind of don't have much hope on this.
1: Oh, I do. I ha- I have a bit of hope. Well, OK, then I mean, it, d- it just depends on who they elect in. I mean, if you're looking at the, the European Parliament generally, I mean, even Ireland has sent some nutters there. But seeing all the chaos and all the disaster almost does help improve the odds that in the future our generation or the generation that will come after us will see this period of history as a very destructive and troubling and damaging one and will do what they can to improve it. I think it it sounds almost like a kind of a chaos theory, but sometimes going through horrendous experiences like these, it has a way of making people respect the need for dialogue, the need for peace, the need for mutual cooperation. I mean, that's just the EU, whether that's going to happen generally in the world. I mean, yes, there are certainly some nut jobs coming out of the woodwork everywhere. But so long as the majority stay sane and stay cooperative and keep their eyes on the bigger picture and maybe try and save the fucking planet. How about that? Then things should hopefully stay
2: Intact. It'll definitely get worse in some points, but it, it's kind of bound to get better. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of, of how, how the French spoke about la belle époque, and then they finished uh, when the First World War hit to la fin de cycle. Yeah. Uh, and that whole thing. And, and I think, you know, the Cold War ended in 1981, and now we have another period that has ended. We have, we have had our, like, our own 30 years, I suppose, of relative peace. Mm-hmm. And now we're just, you know, it, it sort of feels to me, at least here in, in, in Eastern Europe, that we're we're living in some sort of an intermediate period of things, and there's going to be something new
1: yeah that's fair and
2: and i I just I just don't know how how would you call a period from christmas twenty fourth of december nineteen ninety one up until twenty fourth of february uh two thousand twenty two how would you call that period that we have like- oh boy, please oh, please well, i mean
1: Yeah, (laughs) I actually get even more granular than that. I tend to separate them into more kind of uh, more specific time periods. I love my time periods and trying to see patterns where probably none exist. I think that's the PhD disease. But uh, for me, it goes from 1991 to 2001 when 9-11 happened. And then that period could arguably be called the kind of U.S. kind of golden age, you could say. There was a lot of optimism. Capitalism was on the rise. Everything was great. The Soviet Union was gone. No more Cold War. Then you had the age of terrorism, the age of fear, the age of Islamophobia, which is arguably very much still around. And these things continued. Then you had the recession 2008 that kind of brought the, all these bad actors who were fudging the numbers in the background further to the fore and changed a lot of things because there was less money around. People lost their jobs and everything, which to me as a, a historian of war and diplomacy is of course less exciting, but still important. And then I think 2016 is the next big point because 2016 had Brexit and Trump in the same year. And I think 2016 was really the year that the old Zach kind of died. the Zach that thought that everything was ordered and there was going to be normality and people generally were sensible. And then the two countries I would have looked up to as a un and America and Britain decided to just go off the fucking deep end. And now we are where we are. And then, of course, then 2016 to... 2022 then was a period of for me and I know I realize this is very irish centric far away from actual from lines look, look,
2: but we don't get irish centric stuff ever <laughs> okay i think i think i think we can do that i mean on this show at this current podcast we, we can focus on 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 the smaller nations you know you
1: should <laughs> rename your podcast the irish border there's loads to talk about
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean see technically northern ireland is kind of the eastern border of eu as well at this point if you think about it
1: yeah it is very much so yeah and geez, that that's a whole issue in on of itself but no i looking at these uh, bad actors dishonest arguments things that just blatantly weren't true people not planning ahead not expecting for disaster in the future that to me is proved that in 2016 these people whether it's the general public or dishonest politicians They can win sometimes. And for young Zach, this was very traumatic. But then, of course, the real shocker for me was 2022. And now I was aware, of course, of things that were happening in Ukraine. But because the war in that started in 2014, because that had kind of degenerated into a relative stalemate with still thirteen thousand casualties on the ukrainian side but a relative stalemate in comparison to now so it was easier to push it to the kind of sidelines of my mind which i suspect many people in europe and the united states except for did as well judging by how surprised and shocked they were at what happened in february 2022 but yeah the this era we're living in now it's a whole new ball game. things are much more different now and even comparing the rhetoric and the discourse in the public sphere from february 22 to 21 the previous year just look at how people thought of nato like how they thought of the european union's military potential how they thought of like national identity in countries that had russian-speaking populations everything's different now and it's just, it's very difficult to see what the end game is here. I mean, the actual likelihood of Russia winning is, in my mind, infinitesimally small, unless something dramatic happens, like Arman Gherkin gets promoted to the tippy-tip-top. But even then, I just think these, the Russians are, like, they haven't even captured Bakhmut, and they've been hammering that nail for eight months now and i mean we can talk about this as well but i read recently that ukrainians have done a huge blood drive and the lifetime the like the kind of storage of blood is 21 days or so so if we think that that blood is due for that counter-offensive then within the next few weeks the situation could change dramatically again. But yeah, I it was, very, it was very shocking.
2: You know, it also signifies the fact that something's going to happen really, really soon. Ooh, really soon. Do tell. The fact that this happened today, you probably aren't informed of this, and uh, so is no one else, but I'll give you some news. Apparently, Igor, uh, sorry, apparently, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the guy from the Wagner Group. Yeah. He has written a statement that um, he has offered to become a peacemaker in Sudan you know what's happening there because apparently he deeply and genuinely cares for the Sudanese <laughs> people, and United Nations wants their blood. So he's ready to go oh there my. at any time to solve the issues between them in a diplomatic manner. Now it's kind of funny, to, you know, how um, kind of a guy who spent ten years in prison and who's as as close to being a lawful thief or thief in law in the paniachi sense is going to be a peacemaker of anything. And by the way, I'm writing an article about the Russian prison culture for, for a policy magazine right now because I think we Westerners make a lot of mistakes because they're, they they don't, they don't know this culture. No, or they don't want to know. <laughs> One of the things I mentioned there is the fact that on April the 9th, there was like this... Um, this article where Prigozhin stated that he does not mix in the Wagner group like the lower prison case the Petoks with the the standard ones the Muzheiks because that would lower morale and destroy everything and now they do it in the Russian regular army when they recruit them Mm -hmm. and and that was just ignored by Institute for Study of War for example by the UPI and like everyone, just no one mentioned this because apparently they a, don't speak Russian, don't know what's happening. And they just saw this and they was like, what the hell is this? What is a rooster? What does it do? So, yeah, I'm, I'm working on an article about that because, oh boy, apparently it's kind of weird to not to know a major part of Eastern European slash Soviet post-Soviet culture and just do this stuff. But, but yeah, if Prigozhin now in an external order wants to just go to Sudan and be the peacemaker there... I think the going is going to get really hot very soon, though.
1: Yeah. Do you think he's being pushed out or do you think he's trying to find a way out himself? Maybe he's very nervous of that
2: window. Oh, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, To both. Because... He's definitely being pushed out, I think. I always think about how this is going to look at the peace deal, because currently, for me, it looks like the Russian lower colonels and stuff like that, they're kind of you know, drawing everything out and just, you know, let's fight this war, artillery and whatever, and see what happens in the end. But I don't really see how a deal could be made at this point. I think this will—this is going to have to come down to some sort of military victory. And then Igor Girkin and other, other of his guys really are afraid of 1917 repeating and Russia falling apart. And... I'm kind of with their camp because I don't believe how, for example, Ramzan Kadyrov and his Chechnya will stay a part of Russia if Russia loses at any, at any point. Yeah, I, I see that too. It was funny for me when Musk offered his peace deal terms. Oh, that gobshite! It was just can't stand him. It, it was just so bizarre. I mean, okay, no, I
1: I have, I have a question for you. Which peace deal was better? Xi Jinping's or Elon Musk's?
2: I, I honestly, if I, if you would be like here in front of me in person, I would like punch you right now, probably with <laughs> legs. Uh, but no, I, I don't know. At least, say, at least you know, with with Xi, it's super simple. Xi just wants to sell, you know, stuff to to Europe. Mm-hmm. The, that's a thing that I that we can speak between us as Europeans. I think that you know, China uses as a huge market. They're fighting with the United States, but I think EU is. Weirdly enough, pretty uh, like much more okay with China than you would expect. Like, look at Lithuania and how they actually, you know, did things with Taiwan and no one supported them,
1: yeah, that was interesting
2: <laughs> well, everything everything's kind of interesting, but but that's kind of my next point, and you know uh, to to kind of slowly close down to wrap it up and make it about an hour longer or something. how do you cope with all this this mess sometimes when 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 all these news happen about the war and everything and I'm neck deep into this this whole mess. I can't get out anymore. I mean Right. I just I just wonder how do you deal with the fact that the more you actually learn, the the bigger expert you are on these these things. The grimmer it actually tends to look sometimes, because currently for me, I I look at Russia in the future and I see what's happening in Port-au-Prince in Haiti right now. Oh, and that scares me. And on a the larger scale, too. Just replace uh, gangs funded by politicians with private armies with jets and tanks.
1: Yeah,
2: which scares a lot. Oh wait, I know what I'll do. I'll do like like every other prude Latvian. Move to Ireland. <laughs>
1: yes, come here.
2: <laughs> which is which is kind of funny because uh, Zach knows. But when we joined the EU, uh, a lot of Latvians moved to Ireland. Just. Well, it was a thing for a while. Oh, no, uh,
1: Ireland for a while was the place to be, and then everything went down the toilet because, yeah, Irish politicians had been a little bit dishonest about how rich the country actually was. And yeah, we're kind of still recovering from that in a way.
2: Well, you know, yeah, this is a kind of a just a calm down question w- what's happening in Ireland? Because you know, w- we hear a lot about. Britain changing uh, prime ministers and everything super often, and I don't know. I everyone expected at least here in, in Lafayette and in other places in continental Europe. And I heard this from my listeners too that you know after Brexit, say Northern Ireland would be surely, surely they're going to join uh, Republic of Ireland anytime soon because they will want to you know yeah. be in the EU. And then you know Scotland referendum might happen. Why didn't that happen? Is it because it's like. This is the one thing that I can't get. We have like these linguistical things in the Baltics with the Russians and, sure. and, and last there. Is the hatred there so huge? Maybe, maybe I should like look in the history of Ireland more about. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I know about the independence war, which was followed by the civil war, then the, by the agreements and what's a sovereign, what's not, and all that mess.
1: Yeah.
2: But I've, I've put some effort in it. They just don't get, you know. Yeah. At one well, point, it, at one point really, it really looked like everyone was getting behind Sinn Fein and, and what happened yeah. then
1: well actually in in 2020 you see this all got obscured by the pandemic i'll just answer the Sinn fein question first so mm-hmm. Sinn fein are the political party that came from the ira so it emerged in the 80s and 90s and initially had a very uh, a very suspect reputation but has since kind of reimagined itself as a very left-wing party and Sinn Féin is now the main political kind of opposition party. It's Sinn Féin by the way is is an Irish an Irish term it literally means we ourselves. So our uh, <laughs> our our Irish political parties all of Irish names and it's very funny hearing people try and pronounce them. But they did actually win most seats, but they didn't I,
2: I, ho- I hope I did uh, I hope I did it at least nearly correct. Oh, you
1: did. Much better than pronouncing my surname, so
2: good job. <laughs> Sorry, I, I actually actually <laughs> I can and t- I can Misread your surname. No, it's okay. <laughs> I get it
1: all the time, trust me, all the time. I don't See, mind at all.
2: <laughs> Latvian has just a letter for the S sound. Okay. So so we know it. Uh-huh. Please carry on about the party that was a terrorist, basically, for a while.
1: For a while. Yeah, so the <laughs> former terrorists and their leaders definitely did not know the IRA and never took part in them. But yeah, anyway, um, I, I'm jesting for effect. But in early 2020, before the pandemic basically happened, Sinn Féin won the most seats, but they didn't have enough to form a majority like and basically be the government. So you had these two other parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and I know they sound very similar. That's because they basically are very similar. But these two parties emerged from the Irish Civil War in the early 1920s and kind of just basically shared power. They they pretty much just passed the hot potato around for the next century. So that's why it's such a big deal that Sinn Féin... It looks like at the next election will be the largest party and will actually form a government this time. And as a consequence of that, by the way, in Northern Ireland, which we mentioned in that actual political situation, Sinn Fein in the most recent elections won the majority of the seats. And as a consequence of that, for the first time ever in Northern Ireland's history, you have a Sinn Fein candidate who is going to be the first minister of Northern Ireland and the unionist is going to be his or her deputy, depending on who Sinn Féin choose. So it will likely be Michelle O'Neill, who's running the running things there. And then down South, you could have a situation where Sinn Féin is in power and leading at both parts of the island. And now Sinn Féin wants unification, but judging by the situation in Northern Ireland, now it's, It's going to be pretty tricky because we haven't had power sharing in Northern Ireland for nearly a year or even more than a year because the unionists insist, despite pushing for Brexit and despite saying they knew what they wanted with Brexit, unionists insist that the latest compromise deal, the so-called Windsor Framework, which basically keeps Northern Ireland in the EU customs union and single market, while also still connecting it to Britain and having a very minimal amount of checks and, and balances and that kind of thing at the, at the Irish Sea. Uh, unionists insist that they're not satisfied with this arrangement because it takes them out of the European Union, but that's or it takes them out of the United Kingdom, rather, I should say, and obviously being unionists, they don't want that. But the problem with that is the reason why Northern Ireland is constantly talked about when people talk about Brexit is because if you're going to not do that, then you're going to have to find some way to distinguish if Northern Ireland wants to stay in the United Kingdom and then Ireland itself is in the EU, how are you going to police a border? Especially when, during the Troubles, the conflict that basically raged during the 60s, 70s, 80s. Side so,
2: so, so note, The Troubles is such a British way how to put the whole thing. I mean, <laughs> if, if you say, oh, we had The Troubles, it says nothing it's about the whole- bother
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, it was... <sighs> The troubles just fails to describe the whole mess. Yeah,
1: and it was horrendous. But that memory of of violence is basically what led to the current peace arrangement. And it is and we recently had the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and that a part of the provisions of that was that there'd be no border infrastructure on the island of Ireland, because it would be targeted by Republicans or loyalists, part paramilitaries and everything like that. So, so you can see the problem if they're not if Northern Ireland isn't going to be in the EU, and by all accounts, the unionists still want it to be. But a majority of people in Northern Ireland itself voted to stay in the European Union. It was just the fucking little Englanders, and that that I just. Oh, it's just seeing the damage they've done to the island I love, and to all the relationships, and it's just kneecapped themselves, shot themselves in both feet, both arms, and the face at the very end of it. It's just it 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 it's maddening to see them still having gotten Brexit done, supposedly not being able to fix it. But that's why everyone talks about when they're talking about Brexit. That's why they talk about Northern Ireland, because that was the single biggest issue, because people were asking during the referendum, well, how do you solve Northern Ireland then if you want to take the United Kingdom out of the EU? What are you going to do about that area? And they were very vague, Brexiteers were, about the actual plans for that. And they continued to be vague when Britain left the EU, And I mean, I had to teach this in, I had to lecture about this in university. So I had to teach myself all about this kind of thing and how the European Union works and all that jazz. And I had to learn, like, this has gone through three different stages. We had the backstop. We had, oh, what's that other one called? Well, the most recent one's the Windsor Framework, but there was a a second one. You see, this is the problem. It's It's such a difficult problem to solve. And the British basically created it by doing Brexit and not planning ahead to the point that it flummoxed the actual Conservative Party. And they have had five prime ministers since 2016 as a result of this. So it is, it's a disaster. And I don't th- I don't see, unfortunately, I don't see how Britain is going to join the EU in maybe in a generation or something, but a complete i I haven't seen the British do something this stupid since the Suez crisis, and that was in nineteen fifty six so and at least then it wasn't a referendum it was Anthony Eden having a mad one so in this case in twenty sixteen it just
2: i like 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 i I will from now on use the Anthony Eden did a mad one as the official description <laughs> of what happened there.
1: That's yes, great. that's literally what happened. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, it just, and I and I realize I'm deteriorating into barely coherent ranting, but it just makes me so angry because it was so irresponsible.
2: That is normal on this show. I mean, at this point, I think if we don't, if we don't devolve <laughs> into incoherent rambling, people are going to call me and ask if I have been like, you know, held prisoner by Russians. <laughs> not today, guys. Not today. I've, I've, been in, I've been in a Russian prison for 10 days at one point, oh, but that was for different reasons. God. That was after we met, by the way. It was like in in 2020 when I was in my like Ludza, little border town next to Russia, and I just you know was, was going across the border all the time as, um, you know, as correspondents do, you know, cooperating between small towns sure. across the border. And at one point, like I had started my show and. Um, well, uh, I just got detained because apparently my, my visa wasn't legal and whatnot. Whatnot, it was just you know, a bit of a bit of unfun kind of mm, as as you say, the troubles. I will say the little, the little unpleasantness, <laughs> the minor inconvenience. Yes, it is, it is, it is what it is. This is kind of which is kind of why, why, why I think you know, a lot of people complain about all this, all this mess. And if you look at, for example, the demographics, and this is a bit of a EU politics, Baltics have. Disastrous demographical growth. Mm-hmm. The problem is that um yeah, we've hit the point where we, we our birth rate is declining like in all advanced economies. But we also never had the boom after World War ii because we have we've had so many wars and we we have been sent to gulags and shot and murdered all the time that we just we just skipped the boom part. We went straight down to declining birth rates. Always fun. Well, Russia Russia's the same problem, even worse. Yes, yes, exactly. And I'm thinking about what's going to happen with Ukraine as well. Since I don't know, if you're a Western European, I would actually kind of worry about uh, Ukrainian women and Russian women. I mean, mail order brides used to be a joke; that won't be a joke anymore. Yeah. We're, we're going to see a population like, like currently, by the way, in Latvia, we have, uh, we still have the disbalance from World War II and everything. We have 54 percent women huh wow we have more women than men yeah yeah so you have the pick of the bunch 65 percent of businesses are owned by women in latvia
1: oh well i can imagine they're far more successful than (laughs) in that well i mean
2: they survived They they survived and that's about it and like if you look at demographics then yeah ukraine and russia is gonna have like ukraine did not need this and everything and it's pretty bad well uh On the bright side, the land prices are probably going to go down. It's because of the landmines though, but you know, you have to take the good with the bad, I suppose.
1: I I had a really good conversation with uh, Dr. Jennifer Shuba, who's an expert on demographics and all that kind of thing, wrote a book about the world's population seemingly growing endlessly, but actually it's more nuanced than you think. And whether it's caused by low birth rates, just from domestic factors, it is a real issue. And even we see China's population flatlining too. And I mean, the Brexiteers don't want to hear it. The Republicans definitely don't want to hear it, but the solution is immigration, particularly with the problems being caused by climate change and everything in all a large part of Africa. Like, incredibly in Nigeria, you have the largest, the largest youth population, like I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like by 2050. Now I can't just throw out empty statistics because I looked at your reviews before I came on. And a lot of people are like, you just, he just makes shit up. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a bot, but I, I don't want to contribute to that. So it, basically look it up. Nigeria's population is, is mostly young and growing exponentially. So to make up for the shortfall in our own countries, we will, and to pay for our pensions and everything like that, we will have to rely on those countries to actually bolster us up. And the racists will not like it, but you know what? There's a racist party seemingly everywhere. We have the Ireland is full crowd, even though if you've ever gotten a bus anywhere in Ireland, you can see it's plainly not full. I mean, 8 million people used to live on this island before the famine came along, and now only about six people do if you include people in Northern Ireland. So it's just it's just ridiculous. So these are solutions that need to be seriously thought about. But for Russia, I don't know. If it doesn't collapse into all its little independent republics, if there's not a kind of Haiti-type situation, it's just very difficult to imagine what's going to happen next, especially if the war... Continues to go so disastrously bad for them.
2: Well, about my reviews, by the way, I, I haven't checked them in a while because since I, I think I'm still sitting pretty high at like four point seven or something. The bots are trying though.
1: Oh no, they're st- they're still high. Yeah,
2: at one yeah. point I understood that the, the the bots are trying really hard. They're definitely trying. They have turned their money somehow, and I just stopped caring at yeah. one point. It do- it doesn't matter all that much. But, I don't know that, that's just understand after so many years of podcasting. I mean. Look Zach, we met in 2018 and we both were podcasters back then. For how long have we been have we been doing this? Man, we're old now. Yeah, I did
1: 2012. May 2012 is when I started.
2: Oh uh, 2014 for me. Wow. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me think about how, you know, we're we're, we're the old wise old people right now and someone thinks that we're you know they're getting some actual advice from this show by no no l- l- listen to someone smarter although at this point hey um, it's not <laughs> that many people that they you actually can go to because we've been working and stuff I don't know this kind of Ukraine situation at least uh, of to, to wrap this up then you'll have to do a nice plug for your show you know, and a goodbye on everything I think that this this war really matters, not only to Ukrainians, but also to us. Like in in every European country, which is like not France or Germany or UK and everything, because Mm -hmm. when when you come from a smaller country, I think you kind of feel it on an emotional level. You have a different empathy for the Ukrainian struggle. Yeah. Because what's happening is their larger neighbor is trying to destroy their sovereignty. Now, raise your hand if you come from a country where this has happened to you before and now that causes probably some major issue in your country still until to this day. Hello there. I, I, my hands up.
1: Hi, I'm Irish and I'm speaking English.
2: This, by the way, is one <laughs> thing that I kind of take real, go. huge pride of because... When I was growing up, it kind of seemed stupid to me to actually care about all these, you know, Lafayette National things and sing and dance festivals. But, you know, when you, when you grow older, you kind of understand that it's kind of a miracle that a generation mm. of two million people, that we're still there. We don't all speak Russian. We exist. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and
1: Despite their efforts.
2: What I, what I would like to, you know. Push down as the final, final message of all the situation here from all of our conversation that's been way too long with a lot of swear words and a bunch of side notes, but whatever, um, is that, you know what, if you think that people in smaller countries don't have any agency, um, well, come over here and let me beat you up. I mean, please, you're welcome, because <laughs> that's the one thing that I hate the most. Like, like, look at Zach, he's literally controlled by the CIA, obviously, right? I mean this is just
1: yes and I've been accused of that.
2: Oh yeah, I mean chill by the way from the KGB so as well. Oh, yet yeah. another thing that we have in common. I can't
1: wait to see those
2: stacks of money. Stacks of money. Yes.
1: Yeah. I can't wait to see those CIA dollars. Yeah,
2: I I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> if you if you had something to add at the end of this cuz yeah. thankfully we didn't go down the super depressing route cuz I don't want to see I recently made an episode about the atrocities reported from Kherson cuz an Italian newspaper, La Repubblica, reported basically the materials that their investigators had given to the the Hague, and published them. And I made a whole episode about um, just about Russian atrocities in this war. That's heavy. And I just try to avoid this as much as I can because that involved things so bad. I, I I yeah. This is why I try to keep it as, as at least a bit optimistic. That's fair. If you have any like. Um, last words before we explode your whole country, Comrade. Just joking, man. We we have to do we we have to do the smaller countries diplomacy thing. But but please uh, tell tell people about your show and something about yourself. And and uh, well, I know all this stuff. But but please go on.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. And my name is Zach Twomley. I am soon to be Doctor Zach, and I am doing When Diplomacy Fails podcast and have been doing it since May 2012. We cover basically the build up to and the outbreak of wars in history and kind of explain why they happen. As a result of being over 10 years old, we've over like 600 episodes in the feed. So if you're in the mood for like 17th century stuff, conflicts you haven't heard before, like say the Franco-Dutch War or something like that, or you want to know more about things that you might know a little bit about like say the 30 Years War or You want to have your mind blown by myth busting, so maybe check out the Korean War or the Treaty of Versailles, the Versailles anniversary project I did. I even actually did, I should have mentioned this when I was ranting about Brexit, I did a series on Ireland's 1916 rising. So, and that was very personal for me. I did it as a centenary series in 2016. So, interestingly, just before everything went to shit, I released a very kind of controversial, uh, very controversial series. So, yeah, check that series out if you're in any way interested in irish history and kind of my perspective on it but yeah wdfpodcast.com is the website but you can basically find me we're on spotify podcast addict i use all the time so the check us out, we have a Facebook group as well. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me on and letting
2: me rant. However, Zach is very harsh in his rules of the Facebook group, he nearly banned me for even inviting him on the show. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when when diplomacy jails, no, but by this point, by the way, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we met when we were just we lads and just starting out. Well, I was, I was just four years in, and Zach was just six years in. I guess we're both old school podcasters at this point.
1: Yes, vintage.
2: And uh, I hope that we're gonna, you know, have a. You're you're one of those people that I'm definitely putting on an invitation list for my Odessa party with the money I will win. And uh, <laughs> and we have to do what well, we have to do one when the war ends. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Zach, and everyone else. Das vidania, As always, remember happiness is
0: mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv and leave a comment there, or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory.